always. Whoever you are, wherever you are, and whenever it is, you are catching some brainwaves, a podcast aimed at making us more informed, inspired, and connected educators. Joined virtually today by Ben Kolb, I'm Becky Peters, and our episode is all about how we as teachers can make the most of teaching virtually during the COVID-19 closures. Yeah, and typically we interview giants in education, experts who are like super, super well-versed in whatever it is we're talking about. But frankly, there is no giant in education who can speak to what we're going through right now. There's no New York Times bestselling book on how to teach in a pandemic. There's not a TED Talk on how to encourage teachers during a COVID crisis. There's definitely not a world-renowned consultant on how to teach during a quarantine. But we do know a world-renowned expert on blended learning and virtual teaching, and she's going to be our first ever repeat guest. She's Catlin Tucker, and a huge shout-out to Catlin. Uh, we can't thank her enough for joining us last minute on a Sunday to talk about remote learning and teaching. Uh, but before we dive into her interview, we want to just take a few seconds to kind of talk about how are we carrying on during the coronavirus situation. So the learning target really for this episode for Becky and I is to make us all feel a sense of connection and community in the midst of all the calamity around us, and to really dive into some nuts and bolts about how can we make the most of teaching virtually. And honestly, we want to preface everything we dive into the episode with this. We all have jagged profiles in every aspect of our lives. Humans are endlessly complex. And it's important to remember that. Last episode, we got to talk to Dr. Todd Rose, who wrote The End of Average. And he emphasized how we respond differently in different situations, that so much of our behavior is contextual. So how we deal with the uncertainty of this specific situation is going to be drastically different, not just from each other, like you and me, Ben, but even from our from moment to moment. Like when, when we first started recording and um, I heard the brainwaves music come on, like I almost had a little panic attack and started crying right then because I missed it so much. I've cried so many times, but it's really important that we give ourselves and each other some grace as we deal with everything. Sometimes we joke around, sometimes we internalize it. Um, panic can show up, anxiety, depression, even physical manifestations of stress like hives or headaches. Those responses are going to happen. So it, it's important that we don't feel guilty about how we handle that um, and that we don't try to impose our own processing and complexity onto other people. Let them have their own real that we're all in the same boat. Uh, and the other day, a friend of mine in book club sent me a poem. I'll link the whole thing in show notes. It's beautiful. But my favorite quote from it is says, um, give up just for now, trying to make the world different than it is. We're all so busy all the time responding to the constant pressures and stresses of modern life. And this can be a time to center and ground and keep our people and our communities close to our hearts. I think one thing is really for sure. After this, we'll no longer be able to deny or question how connected we all are and how interdependent we all are. I'm totally anxious about even putting anything out there right now. I've been dealing with depression and anxiety my whole life. And there's a lot of overlap with how the world feels right now with how I see it when I'm depressed. And I don't have a part-time in wage job without health insurance right now, like a lot of people who are facing really dire consequences from this outbreak. So anyways, all that is to say, uncertainty about everything can really exacerbate our own and our student responses to stimuli out there in the world. So let's connect in any way that we can. Virtual happy hours, virtual dance parties, uh, 100 Google slide slides with comments from 50 people on each page. It all works. Thank, thanks for sharing that and, and being vulnerable with that, because I, I think... For myself, anytime I'm going through something hard, it's ultimately easier when I know other people are going through it with me and, and I don't feel like I'm going through it alone. So thanks for sharing that, Becky. And I think yeah, for sure. I think that brings up a good point in all of this is like you shouldn't feel like a clingy ex or a stalker by checking in with people or FaceTiming friends. Um, I feel really blessed to have a bunch of friends in my life who've sent me random texts who I haven't heard from saying, hey, just checking in, hope you're doing well. Um, and I know I've called folks when I had real no reason to talk to them just because I wanted to hear someone's voice and needed that sense of connection. It was actually during one of those check-ins that uh, my friend Jason, who's a much better friend to me than I am to him, had called Aww. me and I was out on a walk. And he's like, hey, man, just checking in on you. And we started talking. And he had mentioned that one of the things he was doing to deal with all of the uh, feelings he was having as he had started to do some sketching. And he's an incredible artist. He's done some of the graphics we've posted on Brainwave's Twitter. And he sent me one of these the other day, and we'll link it in show notes. And it was an incredible drawing that he made 
And it's these three little tiny Lego characters sitting inside of this little rickety boat on this immense ocean, like a tidal wave full ocean. And he he called his drawing Uncharted Waters. And it was cool just to see him process through how he feels right now. Like we all kind of feel like those Lego characters just clinging to this little tiny raft. Um, but we're in that together. So Super cool that he shared that with me, um, but also just the idea that we can all cope with some of our feelings through creation. And I have a couple Apple Distinguished Educator friends across the country who started a website called createtocope.com. And it's a website with just tons of prompts and different projects that you can do, that your students can do to kind of express your emotions through creativity. Uh, The tagline of the website is creativity is the pathway towards healing has tons of stories and projects that you can do or share with your students in a virtual environment. So definitely check out createtocope.com. That is so cool. I I see it all around me. Um, I haven't been making anything, but uh, my sister and a bunch of people I know have been going through like a skein every day of yarn. Do you know what that is? I have no idea idea what a skein is. (laughs) It's like when you see yarn at the store, just it's rolled up and they're called skeins. Um, But anyways, she's crocheting beautiful blankets. I see kind of that kind of stuff on Twitter. But I I think it's a beautiful idea that creation can help us surface feelings that we couldn't really express in other ways. And it's also good because we don't know how long this is going to last. So like, like, I think it's important to keep ourselves informed with reputable sources of information. Um, I don't know if you saw that Washington Post article with that simulation article um, about the importance of distancing. It was fascinating. I'll send it to you and I'll, I'll link it in show notes. But it's also, it's weird because it's kind of a delayed cause and effect. So I think it's going to be hard to stay committed. Like I'm away from everybody right now and it feels like it's working. So, okay, I can go out into the world and everything will be fine. I heard a reporter on NPR that said that things are going to feel overcautious. Measures are going to feel silly like you're overreacting, but that's where we need to be because the flip side of that is, you know, ugly and and too late. So I think that holds true for like all of this social distancing until public public health officials advise us that it's okay to start relaxing those measures. I think it's really important for us to stay informed from the places that we trust. Yeah. And it's just so bizarre that we're actually in this place right now. I just remember hitting publish on our episode of Todd Rose two weeks ago. And I'm always thinking like two weeks ahead, like, all right, we're almost at spring break. And here's what we'll do for the spring break episode. And how crazy different the world is, right? The world is upside down different than it was two years or two weeks ago. Uh, And one of the most appropriate quotes I can think of comes from Lenin, not the Beatle Lenin, but the former Soviet leader. And he said, there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks when decades happen. And I can't really think of a quote that better kind of fits how I feel about these past two weeks that it feels like at least a decade of time. And during that decade long week, I've really oscillated from being in a great place where I think it's so cool that my son can sit on my lap when I'm in a WebEx and he's not 35 minutes away when I'm in a conference room. But then at other times, I'm having existential crises thinking, how is the world economy ever going to be able to rebound from this? And one of the things that's really helped me recover from those anxious moments is to focus on the now. It's really easy to invent catastrophes in our mind about tomorrow, but we know that today is okay, this second is okay. Um, And I can project and worry three weeks in the future, three months in the future, or three years from the future, or I can really focus on my next three minutes and know those are fine. Uh, When we turn our attention to actual moments, it's never as bad as the catastrophe we're worrying about. So the challenge that I am trying to live is live the next three minutes. I'm trying to encourage the people around me, live your next three minutes and realize that we're all in this together. Three minutes, I can handle that. I really like that. Um, and the the quote too, that decades where nothing happens and then weeks where decades happen. It really made me think about our episode with uh, the performance coach, Dr. Jim Aframow. He counsels and coaches top performers in athletics and CEOs. And one of the things he always talks about is um, the P's and one of them is process. One of his important P's is process. Focusing on the right thing at the right time. Um, And to focus on that rather than the product or the outcome is one of the best things that we can do right now. We can take solace in that. And one of the best people that we could think of to talk about this new process of virtual learning uh, is Catlin Tucker. We spoke with Catlin back in episode 20, great episode about blended learning. Uh, But since then, she's actually authored more books, started a podcast, uh, but she was one of our most downloaded episodes ever. We go to her all the time for consultation from our district too. And we really can't wait for all of us to keep learning from her about how we can cope and thrive 
thrive during the COVID-19 closures. So um, we're going to get to her interview, but stay tuned after the episode because Ben and I are going to share some of our favorite moments and then also some parting thoughts and other resources. But without further ado, here she is. Yeah, let's start. I think the the last time we had a chance to talk back in episode 20, you were kind of fresh off the, the California fires. And I just think, man, of <laughs> crises and learning from it. What are some learnings and lessons you had about school coming out of that time or just about coping with hard times? Yeah. So obviously my family lost our home in 2017 during the wildfires. And that seemed at the time just you know, you can never prepare for something like that. Um, it's just kind of, you muddle your way through it. I feel like when you're faced with stuff like this and what's been weird for me on a personal parent level, teacher level, or educator level is really that since 2017, I feel like every single year schools have closed for a dramatic amount of time, whether it was for other fires that happened in California, whether it's natural disasters, now this pandemic. And I just wonder if we're entering this time where we need to be much more prepared to get kids learning online in generally, you know, in general, I I worry about the kids who are at home right now who have very little structure whose schools and the teachers aren't prepared to continue learning online. Like what are they going to do all day? It's frightening. Yeah. It's really scary. It's really scary. What do you, um, for teachers right now, uh, parents in those environments, all of those things, like what kind of advice um, have you seen or given or, you know, about like trying to not just survive, but also thrive during this time. I know that it seems like it might just be a survival thing, but um, yeah, I don't know. How can we move ourselves forward every day? Yeah. I think for me, I am such a planner. So, you know, when we were faced with the loss of our home with the fire, I was very much transitioned right into planning mode. Like what needs to get done first? What are my kids needs? How do I create normalcy in this time that is clearly not normal and is really challenging on a lot of different fronts, emotionally, mentally, financially. And I feel like I'm bringing that same intention and plan to this environment or this situation as well. So one of the blogs I posted was about putting together a schedule for my kids. Now I am super fortunate that I have a background in education. My husband is a teacher. So we're both at home with our kids. And I realize that not every family has that luxury. And I can't imagine, you know, if you're juggling kids and you're working from home or doing what you can from home. But for me, creating a schedule for my kids so that they feel that they have some kind of a structure that is guiding their days was a really important place to start. One, because I want them to feel safe, even though there's all of this social isolation and kind of uncertainty about when this is going to end, but also for my own sanity as a parent, like I don't want to spend my days at home having the constant debate about what they're going to do next, because that literally would consume my entire day. So I put together a schedule and it has moments where, you know, in the morning you can have your jammies on, you can watch a couple shows, we'll make breakfast, but then we're moving into our day and you're going to, cause they're in a bilingual immersion school. So there's pockets of time when they have to each read individually in Spanish. And then I put together some discussion questions and they have to sit and have a conversation about their reading in Spanish. And they have a block of time where they're going to sit with my husband and work on, you know, history or math stuff, depending on kind of where they left off in school. And then they have piano practice and they have outdoor time and they have a window of time with mom for English and technology stuff. And so it's all broken up. I printed it out. It's on our refrigerator. And I at least hope for my kids, it gives them a feeling of security. Like, okay, this is what we're doing with our day. It's not total chaos. We're not spending all day in front of the TV. I know as our family, we're like big board game players and card players. And so really trying to prioritize that human connection after their homeschool schedule in the evening so that we're connecting because it is really so isolating to be home for days and, you know, now weeks on end. Yeah, so much in that to unpack. So I, I think the first thing <laughs> would be uh, as classroom teachers, how do we make our online content available to fit into individual family schedules? What would be your advice there for a teacher um, trying to make their content online, um, but make it be able to fit into whatever block of time works for that family? 
Hmm. That's a, that's a great point. I think on some level, the asynchronous or just that ability to do things at different times becomes a really attractive feature of online learning. So when I'm talking with teachers, hopefully, you know, there's, there's a big issue because if, if you haven't done very much online prior to this event, you're going to struggle on a lot of different fronts. But if you're a teacher that at the very least has been using a learning management system like Schoology or Canvas, something your school kind of rolled out, or even using Google Classroom, you, you need to start thinking of that online space as your online classroom and your units moving forward become these modules, these, these online experiences that ideally kids can navigate and self paced through. And maybe you had to have some deadlines. So I have to imagine most educators will be incredibly flexible on stuff like that, but allowing kids to approach work and tasks at a time that is going to make sense for them and their family. Um, that being said, I do think it is really a good idea for teachers to, um, during their normal class hours with a group of kids, when possible, offer some virtual office hours, whether it's Zoom or Google Hangout, because they're, I have to imagine there are going to be kids who are craving that connection or trip and stumble on virtual work and need some coaching. And I think that's great if it can be live, but I know in the past when my students have struggled, they have sent me, you know, text messages via remind or emails online and asked for support. And if I couldn't jump on a call or what they were asking for was a little more complicated than I could articulate in a long text email or text message back to them, I would just record a video modeling how to do something or addressing their questions and concerns and shoot that to them. So really leveraging the online space to create some structure for students, but also to be able to connect with them, even if it's not live, but how are we using video to answer questions and offer support? Hmm. And I think that's the the key to all of this really is like that loose and tight. Where can we be structured and provide like the routines that you are for your family, but then also be flexible enough to adapt to situations and, you know, make it work for a lot of different people. One thing that I, I think teachers are kind of, I don't know, help us wrap our head around, like we're in school eight hours a day. Um, I know that doesn't mean that we're expecting students to work for eight hours at home. And I'm not asking for like, you know, a half an hour of this and 30 minutes of that, but how can we wrap our head around like the new, what seat time looks like? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think what's interesting is if you think about how we spend time in, in a traditional class, kind of what are those the building blocks of a lesson in real time, right? So typically teachers spend time on direct instruction, on modeling. They might spend some time giving feedback to student work. They might engage students in a discussion. They might have a retrieval activity where kids are, you know, dipping back into something they've learned before and practicing. All of those different kind of building blocks of a lesson can happen online. So if a teacher is looking at their lesson and they're like, wow, if we were in class today, I was going to explain how to do this and then show them with this example. And then I was going to have them try it and, and give them some feedback. And what, we were going to have a discussion about this chapter in the book, or I wanted them to take notes on this. There's no reason those pieces can't live online, right? Whether it's video instruction, video models, whether it's online tasks in Google Docs, or if you're using the Microsoft environment, where the teacher could get in and kind of see what kids are doing and offer some feedback, whether it is a virtual online discussion where a question is posted in a learning management system or Google Classroom and kids are asked to participate and respond to the question and reply to two peers. So I don't think it has to be maybe the same volume that, you know, every single thing we would have done in class we do online, but there really is so much flexibility in how we use these virtual spaces. And there's so many tools at our disposal to engage kids in very similar kinds of activities that we would have done in our classroom. It's just a matter of figuring out what are the objectives I have for my students this week? And then if those are my objectives, how am I going to make sure that I'm getting kids there? What kinds of activities do they really need to be engaging in? And then one of the things I really encourage teachers to consider is 
are you able to use collaborative spaces like Google Suite to get kids engaging with each other? Because I do have some serious concerns about the mental and emotional impact of these kids spending weeks and weeks at home, isolated from their friends, isolated from their teacher, away from their routines. That's going to have a pretty devastating impact on some of our kids. Absolutely. Well, that's a great segue because my next question was about your most recent blog post. CatlinTucker.com is just a plethora of learning and we go to it all the time, even when you're not on the show. Um, So I highly recommend listeners go check that out. But one of the big uh, consequences of social distancing is going to be that social isolation that you talk about. So what are your encouragements for teachers to help combat social isolation? Yeah, I think there's lots of strategies that we can utilize as educators to connect kids both synchronously where they're actually working at the same time on tasks together and then asynchronously so that they're at least having the opportunity to hear from other people, chat with other people, lean on other people um, for both academic and kind of personal support in this time. So one of the kind of one of the the theories that I'm really drawn to when it comes to online learning is the community of inquiry. And this framework talks about kind of these three spheres that are these three presences, the teaching presence, the cognitive presence, and the social presence. And one of my, my thing was my last blog, I talk about the need to help students develop their social presence online, their ability to kind of assert their true selves, to recognize their online peers as actual people when they dialogue and work with them. And then also to form kind of like meaningful relationships that are grounded in kind of like trust and respect online. And yet a lot of teachers are really using the online space to kind of disseminate and collect work. And I think there's kind of this opportunity, especially in a moment like this, where we can focus on that social component. So if we're using online discussions to engage kids in academic conversations about texts we're reading or issues or... um, you know, topics related to our class, I think there's a lot of value in also using that space to connect them in informal conversations. Just let them have a little fun in that space and develop some of those relationships and develop their social presence online. So I had a list of just fun icebreaker activities that teachers weave into the academic conversations to support that development of the social presence, because all of the research shows that the stronger the student's sense of the social presence in an online course, the more engaged, the more motivated they are, the more they perceive that course to be valuable. So online discussions used in kind of to facilitate those social interactions, I think can be really powerful. Um, as an English teacher, we do so much with dialogue that I, I think running, you know, it could be totally optional or you could have a couple different times kids could join, but if they're reading a text outside of class or they're working on something, running optional Zoom room check-in chats where everybody comes together and you have that space to have conversations. Um, in my own doctoral work, I am in a blended program through Pepperdine. So a lot of my classes when we're not face-to-face are online in a Zoom room. And we have so many academic, but also social chats on Zoom, um, me and my classmates. And that's, it's despite the distance between us, has made me feel really close to that group of learners. And I think we could do the same thing at the K-12 level. Hmm. Um, I also really would love to see teachers joining kids, groups of kids on things like Google Slides and having them develop an inquiry question and do some research together and put together a, a multimedia slide deck of things they're finding. So I think there are definite avenues to engage kids in kind of this connection, this collaboration, this social component using tools we already have and that many of us are already familiar with. Oh, I love that because I, I think, you know, we we started looking at some of these things and, you know, your first thought is, oh my God, I have so much catching up to do. I have so many new things to learn. And yeah, that's probably true, but also take it slow and stick with what you know and, you know, don't put too much pressure on yourselves or, or others to make amazing content right away. Um, one of my 
our kids have been doing magic tricks and like researching and learning about it's and it's silly, but like it, it comes to that like social thing. And then we put the videos up on Google slides and they comment to each other and it's been really cute. Um, so, but you mentioned like, you know, that social sense of belonging um, seems to be a real tenet, a real important part of online learning. What are some of the other non-negotiables that we know about online learning at this point that some of our teachers can learn from now for this time? Well, I, like I said, I, I'm a big fan of kind of like the, the backwards design approach. So if you're thinking about taking your learning online, I still think it shouldn't just be kind of like throwing random activities on the, you know, online for kids to tackle at home. I think it's much it'll be much more successful or teachers will be much more successful if they think about it in the sense of, okay, this could last for, let's plan for the next two weeks or the next four weeks. Here are the learning objectives. Here are the standards that I'm focusing on. This is what I want kids to be able to know and understand, or I want them to be able to do. And then think about like, Am I going to assess this? Am I going to want to collect some artifact to, to figure out whether they master these particular skills or whether they learn this information? And then which of these instructional strategies that I have at my disposal, you know, whether it is discussion or collaboration around, a, you know, a shared task or it's inquiry, what, is, what are the, the pieces that will help me get kids from where they currently are to these objectives that I have in mind? And, and I agree with your point. Like, I don't want teachers to feel like, oh my gosh, I have to learn all this stuff. If you're using Google Classroom and you're comfortable, you know, with that environment, there's so much there that you can play with. There's that question feature. It can be used for online discussions. Um, you can try recording some basic videos with Screencastify and share them directly in Google Classroom. Um, but I think there needs to be a real intentionality in terms of what we're designing and why we're designing it and what are the objectives we're really working toward with kids and what are kids going to need from us to get there. So this, this question might be a little bit similar to that one, but this is really a brand new world for 99.9% of the teachers who listen to this. And I remember when I was a first year teacher, um, my department chair was like, Hey, you guys all need to get the bulletin board out in front of your classroom looking nice. And I took like seven hours <laughs> making that bulletin board. And I remember Eric Vishnik, who was my mentor, was like, Hey, you're going to find that there's a lot of stuff you have to do and you're juggling and that as you're juggling, you have to figure out what are the glass balls you can't let drop and what are the, the ones that are going to bounce up and you can drop. And a bulletin board is not something that's like a ball that you can let drop. You need to really invest your time in um, having great activities for kids to do in class. You know, And he kind of really laid out um, what are the wasted times that I was doing and then what are the things that really had a ton of impact. So what in your mind when we're making our classrooms online are the bulletin board that we could waste eight hours in and what are the practices that really move the needle? So I guess what would be um, a, a time waster and then what would be something that you think really moves the needle for learning? You know, I hate to throw something under time waster because somebody's going to listen to this and be like, oh, I totally do that. Um, <laughs> but I think for me, the if, if I was coaching a teacher and, and saying, here's what I would definitely have in your online course, I would say video instruction, the things that students, the concepts, the information that kids are going to have a hard time unpacking themselves, um, not just to move lecture online, but really unpacking the, the concepts or, or using video, like I said, to model a process that's going to support kids in making progress. I think online discussions are a must. It, kids have to be engaged in discussion. And what's fascinating to me is I spent a lot of time in my first book on blended learning, digging into online discussion, because online discussion is a straight up staple of online learning. Like you're not going to take a course online without having to engage in a discussion about what you're learning, what you're reading, et cetera. Yet teachers are really scared of online discussions, right? This idea that kids are going to be engaging in this space, they can't control it or monitor it 24 seven. So there is a degree of self 
regulation and um, kind of uh, appropriateness trust, and respect. Yeah. yeah, and trust exactly that needs to happen. And my message has always been like, if you've never run online discussions, maybe your first discussion should be, hey, I want to engage you guys in conversations while we're learning remotely, but that has to be a respectful experience. What can we do in an online discussion? What behaviors, what norms can we agree on as a class? They're going to help keep this space safe. Mm-hmm. And then it's, you got to practice, you know, and kids are going to make mistakes because they're kids. And that's why they're in our classes to learn how to do better. And so our job as teachers moderating an online discussion is to help them understand how to engage in a respectful, supportive, and substantive way in an online discussion. It doesn't happen overnight, but it is a powerful, powerful tool, um, in our online teaching arsenal, you know, that online discussion component. I think that if we're going to have kids doing review, maybe something I would put under a time waster would be making everybody review using the same digital handout. And instead, can we link kids to review that is more customized for their level, whether it is vocabulary review with like a vocabulary.com that's going to drop words once they've mastered it or whether it's, you know, a practice grammar practice on a no red ink where once they, you know, demonstrate mastery, you move them on to the next thing. So if they're already online accessing opportunities for practice or we're doing retrieval activities, how are we using technology to kind of customize that experience to personalize that experience for students? Um, and then I would say, Anytime you're asking kids to do something by themselves in a Google document, I would love teachers to pause and say, is there an opportunity to join students or create groups where they could be collaborating on this together? And maybe that is, that's really where I would love to see the focus is on more collaborative practice opportunities and more collaborative inquiry kind of tasks that join kids outside of the classroom, not so much, Hey, I would have given you this paper in class and now I'm making it available virtually online for you to do. Huh. You feel like that need for collaboration is, is more specific to now, or is that always your advice for, um, I mean, it's, it's kind of always my jam. I, I really think there is so so much opportunity for kids to learn from each other and see each other as resources, um, experience things and then unpack them together. I think that's much more powerful in general than isolating learners with worksheets and individual Hmm. kind of practice. No, I love that. I love that. I'm curious too, if you could give us maybe a little bit more about online discussions. I mean, really the only thing I've seen that like my only technique for online discussion is post something below and then reply to two other people. I mean, that can't be all there is. (laughs) No, it's not. So I can share from years of experience and making just a boatload of mistakes that um, there are some definite ways to improve online discussions. First, give your online discussion a catchy and creative title. This may seem so simple, but like when my kids log into Schoology, they only see the title and like the first line of whatever the first question is. And if I have titled that chapter three discussion question, kids who haven't read chapter three or who maybe aren't super inclined to get involved in, you know, a discussion, they're going to see that and be like, I'm out. I'm not doing this. Right. But if you grab them, like think of your title as your hook, you're trying to hook them so that they'll open up the rest of the discussion question. Um, I really suggest that teachers layer their questions as a way to subtly differentiate within an online discussion, because an online discussion, you have the entire class in one space having a conversation. But as we know, an entire class, that's a huge spectrum of skills and abilities and maybe language proficiencies. So I always encourage teachers, instead of a single question, layer your questions, have I usually shoot for three. I always start with the most challenging question at the top, because I figure if kids get it, they'll just start typing a response. Um, And then I 
make my second question a little more accessible. And then my third question, even more often, it's more like reflective, draw on your own personal experience. And kids always knew we don't have to answer all of Tucker's questions. She's more interested in quality over quantity. Um, and so that's a kind of, it allows students more entry points into the conversation. So instead of a single question that I may or may not know how to respond to, they have multiple entry points into the discussion. Um, I also say that media is at this point, it's a must, like whether it's a video clip or a graph or a graphic or an image, anything that gives them something visual that they can think about, draw on, talk about um, something that complements the online discussion. And, and there are times, <laughs> there are times even when I'm like, I do not have a great idea for a visual for this discussion. And I will just choose something kind of tangentially related because I'm kind of like, look at this, answer my question, right? Um, and then I encourage teachers to skip a line after the discussion questions themselves. And then like you said, be really clear about once you've posted your response to the question, read and reply to at least two or three classmates. And then I give them ideas for what they can do when they reply, you know, compliment strong points made, make connections, ask questions, oh. those kinds of strategies. Oh, that's nice. You could even put like a ladder of feedback in there. Like, totally. yeah, look for something you can make better. Look for something you can recommend. That's, that's really good. I like that a lot. Thank you so much. Cause I, yeah, I'm, I'm just a little bit limited and I know we'll all get better over this time, but, um, that also leads me to another question. Like how can we, just like you said, with online discussion norms, encouraging students to develop that together as an entry point for teachers, what other ways can we empower students to help us rethink what the rest of the school year looks like? Cause it's not going to look normal no matter. I mean, if we go back in two weeks or four weeks or eight weeks, it's, it's not going to be the same. So no. how can we get our students to help us rethink what it looks like? I think asking them for feedback on the regular, which I don't think happens very often. So if, if I'm a, a teacher who doesn't have a lot of experience with online learning or even engaging kids online, which is probably the vast majority, even teachers who've done some stuff online haven't taught entirely online classes before, I would end every single week at the very least with an exit ticket, asking kids very specifically, like what went well for you? What bumps did you hit with the curriculum, with technology? Where, where did you need more support that you didn't have it? Which of these online activities did you enjoy the most or the least? Tell me why. Um, if you could design, you know, thinking ahead to the week, the next week, if you could design an activity to help your peers do X, Y, or Z, what do you think would be fun given that we're all learning remotely? Like, I think that so often, you know, students are the customers in education. They consume what we dish out and yet they are so rarely asked, what is working for you? What are you enjoying? Where are you struggling? What would you like to do if you were designing an activity? So I think the best way to improve this experience and to engage kids in a conversation is to ask them for feedback. And I know that puts us as educators in a vulnerable, a vulnerable position. It, it means some kids are going to say, you know what, I don't like this. And that's not always easy to hear, but I think we really need to just be gentle with ourselves and remind our students, like, this is new for all of us. I really want to make this experience as positive as it can be for you. And most students will reply really thoughtfully. And, and you might be kind of surprised by the really great ideas they have for how to make these courses more engaging. Callan, you're incredible. Becky and I have like a little back channel going where we chat like, hey, I got the next question or let's follow up with this. <laughs> and Becky just wrote, she's actually making me feel better about life in general. She's so calming and has such great knowledge. It's so reassuring. So it's true. It's I hope early. everyone feels that because I'm feeling like more normal than I have in weeks just talking yeah, to you. Too. So th oh, thank you I'm so much so for that. Um, yeah, your kids are lucky. We'll pay you as our therapist. This is good. Uh, <laughs> totally. So I think more so than ever, Twitter to me has felt like a fire hose with so many people being like, oh, yeah. hey, this is free now. This is free now. You can do this. And it, I know they're all really well-intentioned there, but what would your uh, kind of lens be for filtering out as a teacher what you're going to use instructionally, knowing now that pretty much every ed tech resource is now probably free for the next couple of weeks at least, but we know right. we can't do all those. So how, how would you kind of sift through all of that? 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, on one hand, love Twitter and appreciate everybody who shares positive stuff and makes me aware of what's available to me, but it is very much, you have to pick and choose. And for educators, you're right. All of these tech tools that are usually paid for have now free versions for teachers, which I think is really commendable um, that these companies are doing that. But I think we need to also just like, like we've been saying throughout this conversation, think big. We don't know how long this is going to last, but start small, right? If there is if there is a kind of a pedagogical problem that you are facing, a challenge that is that you're like, gosh, how do I how do I deal with this in an entirely online environment? Then that's when you look for a tool or a, a resource that's going to address that specific challenge, right? So for example, if you know you have a grammar workbook and you've just kind of worked out of that with your kids and they don't have that necessarily at home, maybe that's something that lived in your classroom and you just used it occasionally, then maybe that's a situation where you do look into a no red ink. How could I get kids signed up? What would that look like to use this particular tool to solve this problem I'm having now that I don't have access to this particular these books or my students don't have access. Or, you know, I saw somebody was chatting online saying, oh, I want to have my kids read, you know, this book, but they don't have the books. And, you know, there are PDFs online available. And somebody said, oh, and you can have them annotating with a tool like Kami. So I think it's, it shouldn't just be like, oh, there's all these tools, they're free. I'm going to just start investigating. I think it needs to start with what, what am I trying to get done? Or what is that problem I'm facing as a teacher? Or the, the gap that my students are experiencing that I could fill by using one of these tools. And then just start with one because they're going to hit bumps. Your kids are probably going to need support in the form of like some onboarding, whether that's like directions written out or a video um, made available online to support them. But, you know, instead of trying to do it all, be really intentional, intentional about what am I looking for? What problem am I trying to solve? And then, you know, grow from there. If we're in this situation for weeks, then pick up another tool and use it. Um, but don't go too too fast so that you, you know, sometimes teachers get really excited or they bite off more than they can chew. And then it turns into kind of a hot mess and they feel like, Oh, that didn't go well, that failed. And they're really hard on themselves and they don't try anything else. And I want to avoid that situation, just little bits at a time and just build. Cause that's really, that's all we can do. And that's, that's really all our students are ready for, because even though our kids are hyper-connected, you know, via Snapchat and social media and things, they're not necessarily really, <laughs> really um, prepared to leverage online tools for learning or navigate online environments for learning. They, they're they're going to need more support than you think to do that successfully. Yeah. And I think there's two things about that. One, like our district, and I'm sure lots of districts do, we've got like a codex online of the tools that have already been approved and people have used and vetted and all that stuff. Um, right. But if you have like a need and you know what your question or problem is, then you can go to places like that, um, that you trust to find the right tool instead of like the fire hose of Twitter, as, as Ben said, which is, that's really, really good advice. Um, the second thing is, uh, I think an amazing resource is uh, your show, The Balance. How long have you had that for? Uh, maybe four or five months, five months now. Oh, right. Yeah. I thought it was pretty new because this one says episode five. I was just looking at your website. Um, so I'm going to steal a question from you. I want to, um, talk, <laughs> I want you to talk about where our listeners can go to learn from you, like, and talk about your show, but also you asked Jason Green, um, what do you enjoy binge watching when you need a brain break? And I want to <laughs> ask you that question too, because we all need that as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, so where do I start? Where do you want me to start? My, my um, binge or where yeah. to find information? Uh, start with your binge and then we can go back to serious. Oh man, what do I like to binge watch? Well, we both agree, Jason and I are big fans of just zoning out to the office. Oh, Huge. nice. Yeah, yes. that's a good one. Um, like classic binge watching. Yeah. Um, I don't tend to like repeat shows. I will binge watch a show and like plow through it. I'm trying to think of like right now, I I, li I listened to the audiobook You, and so now I'm binge watching that on Netflix. Um, oh, the, I haven't heard of it. 
uh, it's a little strange. Uh, huh. You might want to cool. check it out before you start watching it. Um, okay, fair. Yeah, there's murder involved. Uh, oh, a big okay. fan of Killing Eve. I binge oh. watched the heck out of that show. Phoebe Waller Bridge is just amazing. Oh. Is she not? So Fleabag amazing. is like the most perfect TV show that's ever been made. I really and P.S. So. If I was gonna binge watch anything, it would be Fleabag because I would agree oh. that is probably my favorite show ever. Hundred percent. Oh my god, I like you even more now. Oh my god, I, I know. Only never two even heard of it. So wow. Sad. You should watch it not with your children around. Okay. No, and nothing it that is... I just recommended should you watch with your children around. Yeah. <laughs> so we should upload the link to that in our Schoology course is what I'm hearing. Yes. Perfect. <laughs> if we want to traumatize everybody, yes. if they're not already traumatized, those shows will do it. <laughs> well, I watched the, your, your kids might even like it. Um, I watched the cutest movie last night. It was called Yesterday um, about a guy that wakes up in a world where nobody remembers the Beatles. And so he makes their oh, music. Oh, I saw that. I saw that uh, on an airplane. Yeah, it was, was so beautiful. Really sweet. It was really so sweet. It, it made yeah. me forget about everything for two hours, which is what I wanted. You know what I mean? Yeah, a little escapism. Um, okay, so tell us about your show. Yeah, so, well, my balance... And then is, we'll let you get to your family. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's okay. We've had a lot of time together. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, my, my most recent book is Balance with Blended Learning. And so Balance, you know, obviously been writing it for a while before it came out. And just this idea of balance, but also kind of the imbalances and the lack of sustainability in education, in teaching practices more specifically, really got me kind of thinking about, gosh, I don't know that one, we're doing this job correctly in a way that's going to make teachers want to stay in this profession. And two, just on a kind of institutional schools in general level, there are so many imbalances that leaders and educators are grappling with. So um, and then personally, I struggle with balance. I literally need like 42 hours in a day to get everything I want done, done. Um, and so I decided, you know, I, I'm going to try podcasting. I'm going to talk with people who have expertise in different areas and just pick their brains about kind of where do they see issues around balance and how can we strive to achieve and maintain more balance in this kind of crazy profession that we're in. So that was kind of the, the impetus is just, I was thinking a lot about it and feeling like there's, we're losing so many great people from this profession because it is so incredibly challenging on so many different levels. And we need to be thinking about balance. And I've had a lot of people say, oh, I don't know about balance. Balance is never going to be achievable. It's maybe we should think about harmony. And I was like, mm. I like the word balance better. And I think even if we feel like we'll never truly have like a work-life balance, I still feel like we should be striving for that. Um, and what can we proactively do to kind of create more balance in our lives and in our work and in our schools? So I'm hoping to learn a little something from all the amazing people who come on the show. <laughs> it's beautiful. No, it's, it, it, I really, I'm, I'm so happy that you're putting out content in all those different ways. Cause I mean, you've just got a beautiful mind and you're really fun to listen to and you know, your stuff and it's really reassuring and we really appreciate your time. Yes. Kayla. Catlin, thank, thank you so you. much. And we'll talk soon. All right, let's close up shop. Becky, what did you learn? My favorite thing, and I love that we started with it, was what she said about structure and routine. Um, it was part of the reason we wanted to get an episode out on time. Um, my six-year-old son, actually, the first night when the schools shut down, he spent a legitimate hour explaining to me the schedule that he does at school so that we could replicate it during school at home days. Um, and you know, I learned really quick, it's not going to be the same schedule that we do at school. And we have to be a lot more flexible around like mood or what's happening at the time or what kind of work I have or whatever. But the predictability... Um, also with the flexibility of what we do during the day has been really important for my kids. And it was good to hear Catelyn talk about that. She had a blog post uh, just the other day, actually, with a template of what she's using with her kids. So we'll link that in show notes too, if it's useful for you. Um, I also have friends that are using checklists for their older kids instead of schedules that they can do the things that they're required to do every day, but they can do them as they want to. Um, and again, that flexibility is going to be really important. So... Um, as we get settled into what we're asking our students to do with their families, though, there are so many resources to support educators, which we're going to share a few of, but honestly, um, 
there's no scarcity of amazing resources out there. It's really like Catelyn said, picking the thing that fits your need, right? That's the most important part. So also remember, if distance learning is new for you, don't feel like you have to implement 20 new things every day. Give yourself the advice that you'd give your students and take things one step at a time. Or as Anna says, take the next right step. I can't be the only person that's seen Frozen 50 times since last Friday. Have you watched it a lot, Ben? To do the next right thing. Yes, that's exactly right. And that's kind of like what we were talking about before, like the next three minutes. It's just whatever's the next right thing. I love that movie. I think it's got such incredible life lessons. Like, remember when Kristoff meets up with Anna again and she's trying to destroy the dam and he goes, she like starts apologizing to him for being gone and he goes, it's okay, my love is not fragile. I thought that was like the most beautiful thing in the whole wide world. And I'm actually trying to remember that in my life. Like my, my commitment to my community is not fragile. My love for my people is not fragile. My sense of self, I don't want those things to be fragile. Like, especially now it's kind of turned into a mantra for me and it's helping a little. How about you, Ben? What'd you learn? Yeah, those are great. Thank you. And thanks for getting that in my head for like, it had been out of my head for 10 minutes and now it's back. (laughs) Yeah. I, I first off was just super encouraged by just hearing from her and kind of the sense of normalcy that just getting back into the groove brought me and brought me into a way better headspace. So I think that that would be the first thing. Um, but then I also really liked her advice about all the different options that we have out there and not feeling guilt because we're not doing every single web tool. But really in this instance, that if, um, you know, if you're just adding two new tools to your class and then the social studies teacher is adding two new tools to their class and the science teacher is doing it, like think of what that's like for a kid that they have already there in this uncharted waters and now they have 20 new apps that they have to know. And so I really think in this time, less is more. Let's get back to the basics and focus on really those high leverage strategies that we know we that we know work. And no, we don't need to create eight hours of learning every day for a kid. If our feedback that we're given to kids is doing what John Hattie said, and it's telling students what to do next and how to improve, then it really, we we don't have to f- do as much time because our feedback is is having great results. I love that. That's a really good connection. Thank you for that. Um, the other person I'm really looking at is uh, Jennifer Gonzalez. I know we've we've talked we've had her on the show before. Um, if you do not sign up for her uh, emails already, you should, um, because again, it's it's not like another thing to add to your pile. She's actually really really good at separating the wheat from the chaff when it comes to solid resources that might fit the need for the um, for the situation that you find yourself in. Uh, and also, like I mentioned during the interview, we've got, you know, a codex um, and svvsd.org that is just a a repository of all the tools that we use in district. Um, And I, you know, so look to your districts for those things as well for for different things, but um, go to the people that you trust and then don't drive yourself batty trying to integrate 50 different things. Yeah, absolutely. I also think just harnessing the power of the sun is a great thing as well. We are lucky to have 300 days of sun and have this crisis and this pandemic hitting at a time when hopefully it's nicer and nicer out each day. So I definitely feel different when I'm exposed to the natural world. And so go outside, stay away from people, keep your six foot bubble, uh, but get some fresh air and connect with, with nature. Cause I think that can be a great thing. Awesome. Um, and I'm also, I'm kind of using our podcast tagline for a mantra for what I'm trying to do every day. How can I stay informed, inspired, and connected? How can I do that for my own kids, for my colleagues, for family and friends? Um, I saw Dr. Bruce Perry speak last November. And one of the things that he said that has stuck with me, and a lot of smart people say it, but connection is our hum- is our superpower as humans. We're social animals. But one thing he said is that the smallest functional unit of our species is not the individual, it's the group. We can't survive alone. So volunteer if you can, but do it safely. Um, but then also don't be afraid to just hole up and, and watch a movie or read a book that helps your mind escape for a few hours. That's really important too. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I think that's it for us. For yeah. Right now. I don't, I don't want this to end cause it's the most normal this has felt in a while doing this show, oh, but that's definitely too. it for now. So find your mantra, make time for yourself, hug your family, hug your loved ones, um, stay informed, but keep a balance and don't overwhelm yourself. Get outside and connect with your students and your fellow teachers in whatever way makes sense for you. Thank you for listening and have a great generic time of day.